welcome to today's podcast. What are direct provider and primary care contracts? This program is brought to you by the Healthcare Administrators Association, HCAA. For over 40 years, HCAA has supported third-party administrators and the self-insured employer industry through educational opportunities from leading experts. For information on joining HCAA, please visit our website, hcaa.org. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar, and I'm on a mission to bring value to the healthcare industry through improved transparency. And my goal from this podcast is to give you one aha moment that you can implement in your business, whether you're a TPA, broker, or an employer. In my day job, I run a company called Zaki Point Health that helps self-insured employers and their employees find meaning from the healthcare data. Please like or share this podcast on your favorite podcasting tool so we can bring together a community of like-minded professionals. Before we begin, I'd like to bring you a word from our sponsor, Cedargate. For benefits administrators striving to meet the increasingly complex requirements of self-insured employers and want to leverage data to improve healthcare economics and employee satisfaction with their health plan benefit, Cedargate Plan Analytics is healthcare business intelligence and analytics platform that simplifies and accelerates benefits design, administration, and report distribution. Unlike costly, maintenance-intensive benefits information systems, Cedargate Plan Analytics provides both the casual and power user with the tools and dashboards they need to interrogate healthcare data from clinical and financial perspectives. Today, we have Ernie Clevenger, founder and CEO of CareHair, a worksite clinic, and also the author of My Healthcare Guide newsletter, read dearly by many of us in the self-insured employer industry, including myself. We're going to talk about direct provider contracts. On this podcast, you're going to have the following questions answered. How is worksite clinic different from direct primary care? What services are included in direct primary care? What are the differences in the different pricing models? And how do you see the return on investment? Also, we're going to understand a bit more about the trends in DPC. And why is DPC compelling to employers and any particular employers where this actually has the greatest impact? So sit back and enjoy. Hi, Ernie, Ramesh here, and uh, thank you for joining our podcast. Let me very quickly introduce why I'm super excited to have Ernie on this podcast. I've actually seen Ernie as my mentor over the last several years that I've been in healthcare, and that's for a good reason, because Ernie has spent a lot of time building companies like CareHair, which has become a leading company on worksite health, and now part of Premise Health. Congratulations to Ernie on that front. But also, he spent a lot of time in the industry helping TPAs and benefit consultants really understand how healthcare should be delivered to member populations. So he served on the board of HCA for the last couple of years and has been emceeing the, the executive forum event at HCA for over seven years and is not just known as an authority, but a person to go to whenever you have an interesting challenge or an idea that you want to run by. So I'm super excited to have Ernie and this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, Ernie, let me just, would love to hear 
a little bit about your journey. And obviously the topic today is going to be, you know, direct primary care. If you could tell the audience your background and journey and how that connects to direct primary care today. Well, Ramesh, thank you. And thank you for the invitation to participate today. Um, I was a math major graduating from, uh, from college and was drawn into computers and began to, uh, to work on that. Uh, it wasn't central to my job at the time, which was in circulation for a magazine, Nashville Magazine, which was a city regional magazine, but soon moved into the insurance space through a mutual friend, and it served as a MGU, Managing General Underwriter. Uh, we were a TPA. Um, we also developed uh, claim processing software. So there were three different entities there and for probably 20 years, um, it was in and around the self-funded space. The leading company was um, American Progressive Benefits, AP Benefits. We were at MGU for Cigna uh, through their carrier Connecticut General as well as a manufacturer's life for HMO reinsurance. Uh, there was a time when <clears throat> a group of us began to talk to some academic medical centers, Duke, Vanderbilt, uh, Emory, NYU, Mount Sinai, and others, in developing evidence-based medical guidelines. We thought it would be a good idea on the best way to, to know and to carry out to treat osteoporosis or congestive heart failure. So we put together over 120 guidelines, went out to the market and totally failed, did not make it. I felt that I could call on fellow TPA since I used to call on from stop loss and it would translate into the dramatic need for evidence-based medical guidelines. It did not happen and we failed. However, the on-site clinic where you've got the three Ps working together, the, the patient, and the provider and the payer, all sitting around the table, so to speak, was a wonderful opportunity to introduce evidence-based medical guidelines, do what's right, and to understand the self-funded space of how an on-site clinic could impact overall claims. Because as a, as a former underwriter, stop-loss underwriter, I was interested in impacting not only primary care claims, but all claims. So for the past 20 years, I've moved in from the, uh, the payer space or the financing space over into the provider space on-site clinics. Wow, that's fascinating. So you don't come from the physician, the doctor world. You really have always been thinking about how you bring better care to ultimately reduce costs then. Yes, I've been a self-funded employer and a TPA in my heart from day one. Excellent. Well, this is going to be a great conversation. So maybe tell us a little bit more about how Worksite Clinic is actually different from direct primary care now. Worksite Clinics will bring a, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a staff, and will set up shop down the hall into a factory space or whatever for the exclusive use of the employees and the family members. In many ways, Ramesh, it is the ultimate form of DPC, direct provider contracting. Because DPC in one sense is going out finding a optimal provider entering into a contract in order to deliver some services, radiology, 
muscular skeletal, whatever. Well, an on-site clinic with primary care does just that. It wasn't called DPC in the early days. In the very earliest days, it was probably more occupational care. The arise of primary care is relatively new in the last 25, 30 years, but it had a profound impact on being able to bend that cost curve on all claims, inpatient, outpatient, DXL, specialty care. So the touch of an on-site clinic goes well beyond just primary care, but it is very similar to an employer contracting with a direct provider that is an on-site clinic. So in many ways, it looks like a DPC. And so are you saying that the only, the DPC model is effectively an existing primary care provider who goes out and does a contract with an employer or are there other forms of direct primary care contracts where effectively an on-site clinic has multiple on-site clinics and does a contract with the employer? Are there any kind of gray zones of direct primary care or is it really? I believe your first example of a DPC being largely primary care where a doctor contracts with a patient is the generic model. It is the model that is legislated in the state that I live, Tennessee. In other words, a third party cannot be between the provider and the patient. It must be between the patient and doctor. That is DPC in the state of Tennessee. I was saying earlier that the concept of patient or their employer working directly with a provider is a form of direct provider contracting. Mm-hmm. Got it. Now, Got to it. your earlier question, are there other forms? I think yes. Radiology is probably one of the best. If a manufacturer is spending a half million dollars a year in radiology mm. and a direct provider contracting to a single radiologist within the region mm. could save X amount, then it could reduce that 500000 down to 250000 Why? Because that radiologist is willing to give a discount knowing that he or she is going to get all the business from this manufacturer who maybe dominates the the community that they're in. Got it. So in this model, you could potentially see in the future different kind of provider contracts even. So maybe a local knee surgery place could have a DPC contract with the employer for all the knee surgeries if the employer is large enough and has, let's say, 10,000 cases a year. Yes. In fact, Dr. Smith in Oklahoma is doing something very similar to that. There are employers who've got a contract with him in order to direct their employees for the repair of a knee. Mm -hmm. But even 20 or 30 years ago, there were um, independent practice associations, IPAs, in California that operated under a Knox Keene legislation. There were pediatricians, muscular skeletal, there was uh, oncology, and these were physicians that would group together and then as a bundle, as a practice association, would contract with an employer or HMO or whatever. 
So forms of direct provider contracting have existed. Got it. So looking forward and thinking about our, you know, TPA audiences and broker partners, uh, where does it have the best impact? Are you able to kind of think of different service lines? Where would you say the impact of the ROI is greatest? If I were going to promote and really maximize DPC, I would be a TPA. And here's why. Mm -hmm. The TPA has the data for a given employer across several years. The data can be sorted, as you know, by muscular skeletal, by radiology, by all the different disciplines. When you find that there are two or three sources within a given geographic area and you spread across all three based on your claim experience, to me, that is an ideal situation to go to all three and start negotiating. There'll be one out of the three radiologists that will really shine. And in exchange for directing the radiology care to that single entity, you could realize dramatic savings. So you need steerage, you need the data, you need the analytics, you need the ability to go out and contract. The TPA has every one of those capabilities. Mm. And I guess some volume as well. So you could have multiple employers getting benefit from this radiology contract if a TPA has that radiology contract and can service multiple employers to bring the volume as well. You can. You are describing in some ways what I called in, in younger days an EPO, an exclusive provider organization. The PPO was more generic and widespread and it's lost much of its effectiveness. An EPO is like a PPO inside a PPO. It's if you go to these exclusive providers or one exclusive provider like a radiology, you can offer the following benefits. You could have seamless admission, go and do the paperwork ahead of times, have scheduled appointments to where you're in and out, avoid the co-pays and deductibles by employees in order to add the steerage, and then get a very attractive price because that TPA is directing so much volume that you're able to get an economy of scale that the radiologist will recognize and give it back in a lower cost. Hmm. So while you're talking about the kind of the benefits to the employer, if you were to look at the, from a member lens, what are the benefits for an employer for their member population for DPC contracts? Yeah, before I answer your question, what is the benefit to the member, to the employee? Let me insert the following preface. It must be voluntary. There's got to be a choice. Keep in mind that an HMO had no choice. They had great economics, but at the end of the day, the employee wanted choice. So offer choice, mm -hmm. always offer choice. Mm -hmm. Now I'll tell you, 95% of the employees will choose the attractive offer that is less money. Mm -hmm. We as patients generally do not have a good means of measuring quality. And so we're driven by cost. Mm. And therefore don't say you must go to this radiologist. Say, mm -hmm. 
if you go to this radiologist, there's no copay, there's no deductible, and there's no weight, mm. or whatever the benefits are. Now you will automatically direct the majority, vast majority of activity without angering the patient, without angering the employee, because they will kick back when they are forced to do something but when they choose to do something, you still almost get 95% of the effect. Hmm. So substantial, you know, sounds like benefit of convenience cost. Are there any benefits around outcomes you're seeing for member population? Outcomes absolutely must be a part of it. Again, let's go back to the TPA. How are they ideally suited? Mm -hmm. Follow the outcome of that individual who has been imaged, an MRI, CAT scan, or whatever, or an oncology, whoever the DPC that you directly provider contracted with, follow the results in both cost and quality. Cost is pretty easy because it's a single dimension. Quality is tough. However, for any given condition, there are some key values that you follow. If you're diabetic, you follow glucose hemoglobin A1C, you follow weight, you follow all the residual conditions that can follow, such as retinal myopathy or kidney disease. If the impact of the DPC is not only saves costs, but improves outcomes, the TPA is ideally suited to measure the outcomes from downstream claims or these key clinical values. It is important to make certain that we as TPAs or whoever is adopting this, tell the employee and the family members, not only are we saving you money, but we've done our homework and we're gonna track and measure the quality of the care that is given. You may use Healthcare Blue Book, you may use Castlight, you may use your own data. It's important to track the results. And, and so aside from looking at the quality of the provider beforehand, you're also talking about measuring on an ongoing basis outcomes. So I heard examples for diabetic population. Do you see those outcome metrics being part of the contracts and are employers signing up contracts where they are stipulating these type of outcomes to be managed? I think not. Mm -hmm. Here's why. If you put clinical outcomes as a part of the contract, that provider will shy away from it. They don't know how to measure it. They have been promised that if you achieve certain things from CMS, Medicaid, Medicare, you will get X. Sometimes they get X and sometimes they don't. It is too amorphic. However, the TPA and the self-funded employer do need to measure it. And if you find that a provider is not meeting the minimum standards, they're not meeting your expectations, change them, replace them. You've just got fewer variables if you just can't do your homework using these other tools that I referenced earlier to find the best optimal provider. But if for some reason the outcomes do not continue to support using that provider, make the change. Hmm, got it. So track it. So maybe in terms of, you know, we talked about the benefits both to the employer and the member as well. What kind of 
pricing are you seeing? Is there certain models out there? Maybe you could share what kind of models are you seeing that are successful with DPC contracts? Oh, goodness. 15 years ago, we had three radiologists in town for one employer. The employer was the county. And um, at that time, I think it was like $1,200, $1,100, and $600. So $1,200, $1,100, $600. I went to our doctors and I said, is this one that's charging $600, is their quality any less than the other two? No. Do they give you the same turnaround? Yes. Do you see any distinguishing characteristics for clinical or quality between the three? Oh, no. Then why aren't you directing all of your referrals to the $600 option? Ramesh, you're going to be blown away. We didn't think about it. Now, I know that's a naive response, but I did question. I said, wait a minute, you got to be joking. You do care about it. They said, no, we don't really think about cost. And I said, okay, you now know these three, 1,200, 1,100, and 600. What are you going to do the next time you need to refer a patient out to radiology? Well, we're going to go to the $600 one. Well, why? Because we know. I said, oh, my goodness, the light bulb came on. Sometimes it is as simple as making certain that people know the pricing differences. I go back to Healthcare Blue Book because in a way they, they provide that data, which I think is so valuable. I think it is underutilized. We need to find ways to get the referring doctor and the patient to look at the data. But when the data is recognized, there was no contract that was needed, no special arrangements. The doctors just started referring to the $600 option and there were hundreds of thousands of dollars because this was a 6,000 employee county. I see, yeah. So it sounds like just the information education has been the biggest you know, roadblock or barrier. And do you see that evolving, changing? And does that mean the pricing will become different or the models will become different as this type of data becomes more readily available? Yes. I think the education and knowledge that you referred to a moment ago is absolutely the first step and it has a big impact. Mm -hmm. However, as you become knowledgeable and you become expert in the arena, you begin to drill down and fine tune the model as you should. Mm. So, so the models will evolve. You're kind of predicting. And then maybe touch a little bit on this. You talked early on about the services. You've got the radiology, you've got the primary care kind of services, and you may have some other kind of specialist services. Presumably, they all follow a different kind of pricing model. There's not like a single agreement. It's managing the population kind of based PEPM models, or just tell us a little bit more the range of models that you are imagining in the DPC world. Well, I would certainly start with the price because a TPA or a self-funded employer is going to have that data. You can then sort it by the, the dominant CPTs within radiology, the dominant CPTs within muscular skeletal, et cetera. So you've got the body of data. Price will be among the first items. We've talked about quality that is added there. 
Now, another focus is if you're a large enough employer, let's say over, certainly over 5,000 employees or more, you're going to have stop loss claims that are in excess of $250,000 or $500,000. Now your carrier, your stop loss carrier is interested in those procedures. So what claims can go X of 500,000? You could look at the Sun Life list of the top 10. Uh, oncology is always a, among the, the top, one of the fastest growing is muscular skeletal. So you could be driven by a stop loss arrangement. If you see stop loss claims coming in, your premium is coming, is increasingly more rapidly than you'd like. How could you do a DPC in some of the stop loss claim areas that could get relief from the stop loss carrier? They may not do it in the first year, but as experience begins to manifest itself, again, going back to that data, then you should be armed with the information to go back to the stop loss carrier or carriers and to say, here's how we're managing this situation. For example, if I'm in a young fertile population and I have an abnormal number of low birth weight babies, preemies, well, I may be seen as at risk by a stop loss carrier. But if I've got the means of handling low birth weight babies by fertilization drugs, by first trimester, second trimester education, doing follow-up, perhaps a packaged rate with a delivery on a hospital, a bundled rate, that stop loss carrier will at least begin to have the conversation of offering maybe some discounts from a severe rate increase. Hmm. And so it might take a couple of years for that experience to show in the data. Any ranges you can share or thoughts? Or would it be a certain percent off on your rates? Would it be dependent obviously on the incidence of those kind of claims? Uh, Ramesh, let me go back to the data. If my stop loss carriers has had three years of claims with me and one third of them are coming from premies, there's your answer. Okay. <laughs> you focus on the premies. Let the data speak and drive where you need to do the negotiation. Yeah. Why negotiate oncology if you've had no cancer claims? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. And so as we kind of now think about there is clear benefits, even funding potentially from stop loss carriers. How do you see looking forward now? You know, we are just coming out of COVID, hopefully this summer. Obviously, DPC probably was impacted during this time. So first, maybe talk a little bit about how it was impacted during this time. And then looking forward post-COVID-19, what do you see the world for DPC to look like? Are there any certain categories of services that DPC will be big? And how does that, I guess, let me host hold the next question, which is related to virtual primary care. But I'd love to first talk about DPC as a whole during COVID and post-COVID. May I start with the pros and cons of COVID? We are all familiar with the cons. Mm -hmm. There has been much stress. Our loved ones have died. It has been terrible. So we are certainly familiar with the downside of COVID. 
Is there an upside? I would submit to your audience that the answer is yes. There have been predictions that we would move down the path of using telehealth. In other words, taking medicine to the patient rather than asking the patient to come to medicine. And those predictions were X. What COVID did was accelerate the use of telehealth by tenfold, 10 times faster adoption so that patients are much more familiar with it. Doctors are willing to consider it. Everybody on this call is familiar with the move to telehealth. So in the past several months, that move to telehealth has taken place. Get this, the Gallup organization interviewed millennials, those people who are 30 and below. Ramesh, what percentage of those individuals prefer a telehealth visit to an in-person visit? 86%. This was before COVID. What a stunning number. And so here's a large body of the population who is willing to engage in a telehealth session long before COVID. COVID has just accelerated it for doctors and for the rest of us. I would consider that good move because we are now able to use very smart physicians, practitioners, clinicians, in order to reach out into rural areas, traveling areas, if we're outside the US, if we are remote, if we're not ambulatory, we cannot get to, those are all good candidates that now there is a willing to embrace it. The DPC model, because it at its core is primary care, offers a wonderful opportunity for that physician to extend herself into the patient population in a much uh, more efficient, optimal way. So thank you for letting me focus on a terrible disease, but that did have, I believe, some positive impact. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think clearly we are seeing this in the data as well. Aside from, as you mentioned, population out there has been interested, but the doctor population is now very much has used it comfortable with it and you know better solutions are coming out to make it a lot better for that physician to be able to deliver that care in those remote populations as well and so i think that has been very very positive maybe if you had to juxtapose when you look at virtual primary care versus the dpc models are they colliding or are they supporting let me answer yes and no. Uh, the colliding area is that on-site clinics are growing by leaps and bounds. Clinics are in about one-third of the companies that have a thousand employees or more, and 80% of the balance, 80% of the two-thirds balance is considering it. Well, why would you do DPC versus an on-site clinic? So you talk to an employer and an employer typically sees DPC as a way to extend care to an employee who is not insured, a smaller company, a 20 life company that does not have insurance. That's where DPC is growing the fastest among primary care. DPC primary care often charges $80 per employee per month and $150, $160 per family per month. 
but it's typically only primary care and there may be no care past that. If you have to go to the hospital, nothing's covered. In Tennessee, the DPC law has to make it clear this is not insurance. And if you get a dread disease, you're on your own hmm. because that doctor, that primary care doctor cannot inherit the ability to care for all your specialty needs, et cetera. Hmm. Therefore, employers are looking more to on-site clinics for the global or population care on a primary care basis because they see it integrated into their self-funded healthcare plan. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. one of the best tools to help manage the overall cost for a self-funded plan. So in that sense, DPC and on-site clinics are separate, different mindsets, different intents. Mm -hmm. In spite of what I said at the beginning of this conversation, that an on-site clinic is a form of DPC, but the form beyond as it manifests itself in the thinking of an employer begins to diverge quickly hmm. because the on-site clinic is viewed as a tool for all employees. I'm repeating myself now, all employees to manage a self-funded healthcare plan. Whereas a DPC is that 20 life company who has no insurance. Hmm. I want to do something for my employees. But let me challenge you, Ernie, on this. So as virtual primary care starts to look interesting, I, mean, I know it's, it's a buzzword at the moment, maybe, where all your primary care needs could be taken care of. Why wouldn't even a thousand employee life company where their work model might be remote or partially remote or hybrid, why wouldn't they really kind of start thinking, you know what, I don't need an on-site clinic. I'm just going to go this whole virtual model and some other direct contracts. Okay. Ramesh, how many diagnoses are verified or confirmed by a blood draw, by lab work? I'll tell you, it's 85%. In a virtual DPC environment, how much blood work is done? That DPC virtual doctor can encourage mm -hmm that patient on the other side of the phone or other side of the iPhone to go to a lab core testing center. Mm -hmm. They could send them a Clestec and let them do a finger prick. But the venipuncture is going to be ideally used to confirm a diagnosis. And in a purely virtual environment, that is a challenge. Mm -hmm. sure. Medication. An on-site clinic in most states, with the exception of three states, permits the doctor to dispense on-site meds to the patient. Mm -hmm. How do you dispense a med virtually? You don't. You're going to e-prescribe to Walgreens or CVS or to a local pharmacy. Now you're back into the 65% compliance, uh, or compliant rate, mm -hmm. whereas an on-site clinic with its medications has a 92%, okay. much higher compliance rate. So those were a couple examples, meds and labs, that are barriers to a virtual situation that are ideally suited for an on-site. Hmm. Now, one final comment. That on-site is gonna be viewed in majority 
by the chronic patient, the diabetic, the hypertensive, the COPD. Mm-hmm. Why? Because there's no copay or deductible. And I mean, there's powerful drivers. And sooner or later, that employee names the on-site clinic their primary care provider. All right, good news. Mm-hmm. What percentage of the total healthcare plan is being driven by the chronic patient? It is 85% of the cost. Yeah. Therefore, how well can a virtual DPC take care of a diabetic, hypertensive, mm-hmm. COPD, CHF? There are 16 conditions, according to the Institute of Medicine, that accounts for 65% of America's spend. Diabetes alone is 12%. How will you care for those very focused patients mm. virtually? Yep. Yep. So, I, you know, I guess there are going to be challenges. I mean, uh, obviously there are companies like Livongo out there with the whole diabetes program that's all virtual. There's a lot of money that is being poured into the whole virtual primary care models as well. But your two fundamental points around blood draw and medication adherence, that's a really fundamentally important point for taking care of patients. So I We'll, we'll see where this world goes, I guess. I guess one of the things that you talked a lot about is data. And that's quite clear that you see data is going to be key. How do you see the role of data or sharing of data, particularly in the DPC world, whether it's between the TPA and the provider, or maybe more importantly, to the member? Maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Ramesh, you are talking to a mathematical nerd. So I'm going to have a huge bias toward data. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> I do believe that the data is needed and we've got to mine the data, whether it's uh, artificial intelligence or neural networks or whatever it is. However, I do strongly believe that there needs to be a missionary that is associated with the data. There needs to be a champion that is associated with the data. What I have seen is that there are some very smart people who've got a lot of data and have tremendous conclusions from that data, but they do not know how to tell the patient about it. They don't know how to tell the employer about it in such a way to move them to action, to follow the data. Very rarely is a patient equipped to follow their own data. Very rarely is an employer equipped in order to study the data. And yet we as data aggregators, and I'm gonna include myself with Zaki Point, with Deerwalk, with Springbuck, we've got wonderful tools, but sometimes we forget that we need to take those tools as the champion, as the ongoing champion to the employer and to the patient to get them to understand it. Because that mass of data will make the eyes glaze over and people will go to sleep. Unless you can say, here's a bite-sized chunk. Here's what this data means to your diabetics. And if you will invest in X, the A1C will drop down by Y and the cost will be saved in Z. They will at least listen if you can bring that kind of model. So there needs to be a champion that bridges that gap between the wealth of data and the user of data. 
No, very important points. How do you make those insights, as you said, bite-sized? And then not just for the employer, and I think you touched on a big stakeholder, the member as well. How do you motivate them to take that action and then provide them the right kind of insight? No, very fascinating. Um, you know, I think there is going to be obviously a lot of innovation to be seen there. This has been a really good conversation to tee up what is ahead of us. And so I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, any kind of last message for our listeners as they think about implementing DPC or different shapes and forms of this DPC. I am so incredibly proud of you conducting these sessions for HCAA in the work that they're doing to help bring education and also certainly the attendee, the one who's listening right now, if we have planted a seed, if we have given a germ, a nugget, a gold nugget of information that you can take back to work on a Monday morning and think about it and use it, then we will have achieved the goal of this presentation. That's true. That's our goal from this podcast. Take one aha moment from it. Yes. And I would like to thank Cedargate, our sponsor for this show. Please join us again for another podcast in the series brought to you by HCAA's Voices of Self-Funding. Please like and share so we can build a community of like-minded people. And tell us about topics that we should bring to you next. Please watch your email for updates on upcoming guests. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar of Zaki Point Health.